This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. This week, we have a collection of really extra long stories that I know you'll enjoy. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I awoke in a strange school and was forced to participate in an experiment to survive. Written by Kyle Harrison. I woke up with a pulsing headache, a throbbing pain at the back of my head. The world was dizzying for a moment and I couldn't even properly make out any shapes or colors. As I came to, I soon realized that I was handcuffed to what looked like a school desk. A quick study of my surroundings told me that this was accurate. There was a man right alongside me also on the floor, cuffed to a desk and behind him another and behind him another. I was in some kind of classroom, with at least a dozen or so people, all of whom seemed to be chained up. My eyes took in the surrounding posters and the artwork. There were children's drawings and safety reminders all scattered across the wall, most of them older than I was. And then my attention went to the front of the class, the blackboard where a teacher should have been to instruct. In its place was a simple, concise message, written in chalk and large enough for all of us to read. Tornado Drill 8.05 a.m. I checked the clock on the wall. According to it, we only had a few minutes before the event was supposed to happen, so I talked fast. Hey, hey you, where are we? I asked, kicking the man's foot next to me. His eyes flared at me suspiciously. Like I would know. How should I know? I decided to not bother talking to him anymore and I turned to my left. A petite young woman was there. What about you? Do you remember how we got here? I asked, yanking on the handcuffs. The sound they made as they rattled against the desk was echoing everywhere. I was in the mall with my boyfriend and we were headed toward the food court when I don't, I don't remember anything after that. She admitted timidly. I could tell by the look on her face that she was more worried about the boy than her own safety. But something told me that pretty soon that would change. The clock struck 8.05 a moment later, and suddenly this shrill scratching noise came on over the PA intercom. This system had to date back to prior to the 1980s. I thought to myself as I tried to cut my free hand over my ear and hold my head against the desk. Attention class of 2021, please rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. A very strange voice announced. It was difficult to say for sure what gender it even was. It didn't sound quite human. And then there was a sharp click into a grainy old recording of the American flag pledge that came on over the speakers. As it finished, all of us looked at one another in confusion and fear. What was going on? Attention room three, your tornado drill will begin now. Move to the hallway. 
How the heck are we supposed to do that? I said out loud. Not that I expected the strange machine to respond. Instead, there was a loud rattling from above, and it made me look at the ceiling of the room for the first time. Above every desk, there was an air vent, and on cue, those vents opened. And then abruptly, loud noises and shards of glass spit out from the vents and straight towards us. I reacted in a moment, yanking my body toward the floor as the broken glass sliced across the back of my neck. Using the top of the desk as cover, I did my best to huddle there. A portion of my thigh and right foot damaged from the sudden unexpected rush of projectiles. My others in the class weren't so lucky. A man sitting two desks in front of me had a glass shard impaled straight in the neck. A woman had several hit her across her cheek, and the rain of sharp blades continued to come. The hallway, the woman beside me shouted, we can scoot the desks and use them for cover. I nodded and slowly pushed my desk that was acting as a shield as the rest of the ceiling. It seemed to rumble and shake and the broken glass was now being replaced by more dangerous burning chemicals. Those that weren't under the desk were given second degree burns as we all shouted for them to take cover and then move. The hallway felt like it was a lifetime away. I pushed the desk slowly, doing my best to try and time the pattern of the falling chemicals in the glass. My hands were already burned from the hot toxins, and my shins were bleeding. I just needed to get out of here. I resolved as I pushed toward the door. Some of the others were fighting for the door, trying to shove through and pull their desk along. I knew that there would be no way that we could escape as long as we were all shackled down. And then I looked up at the burning acid and had a horrible realization. We need to let these chemicals burn through these cuffs. I told the girl. I held my arm at a specific angle and then scooted my desk toward the proper position. I bit my tongue and held in a scream as the torturous acid hit my skin and the metal at the same time. It only took about 10 seconds for me to be free. And at the same time, I ran through the door, urging the others to do the same. The girl managed to pull through with only minor burns and three others. And then we heard a strange clang and realized that the glass door was sealed shut. The ones that didn't make it out were now slamming their hands against the door, trying to wriggle the knob, but it was pointless. Next, we watched as the vents reversed flow and sucked the other people in the class toward the ceiling. It was like watching a real twister take up houses. All of them slammed against the roof of the classroom as we watched from the safety of the hallway. And just like that, the nightmarish event seemed over and I was standing in the hallway, looking down at my burnt, shaking hands. The other survivors were turning their attention to our new location, a long tile hallway that seemed to connect to at least a dozen other classrooms just like ours. And much like us, others had escaped their horrible classrooms at the last minute and were trying their best to cope and recover in the hallway. We all shared the same beaten and confused expression, none of us sure where we were or how we got here. Attention class of 2021, Please make your way to the main auditorium for a word from our principal. 
a voice said over the intercom. And then the lights in the hallway came on fully to illuminate the path toward the right. I looked to the others for ideas uncertain of what we should do. There was an emergency exit nearby, but it didn't take one guess to assume that it was sealed shut. So instead, all of us shuffled our feet down the hallway, following the guiding light to our next room. And we soon arrived at what looked like to be a cafeteria with long tables all arranged with a simple school breakfast, packaged donuts, boxed milk, fruit bowls. At least 30 meals were all lined up and ready for us as we had entered the room. A couple of survivors went to check the exits and none of which had any windows toward the outside, while the rest of us settled in and decided to eat. Surprisingly, the food was delicious and fresh. Our captors must want us somewhat healthy, I said as I carefully opened the milk, my hand still shaking, and then I saw a shadow cross the back curtain of the stage that overlooked the cafeteria. Immediately, I jumped up and pointed, and a few others saw it too. Who goes there? One man shouted aloud. The shadow paused, it looked unnaturally tall, and then we heard this strange, obnoxious laugh. A second later and the curtain pushed back and revealed a costume mascot, a large stuffed animal costume that resembled a walrus with a goofy cartoon smile and enormous floppy arms. From the center of the stage came a microphone that rose up toward the walrus's mouth. Well, what a squeaky clean group you are. Welcome class of 2021. Welcome to final school. It announced happily. I couldn't tell for sure if this thing was a robot or a person in a suit. Today has been fun, but don't forget here at final school, the fun can only last until the bell rings, and then it's time to learn, learn, learn. Are you for real? What is this? One man asked again. He abruptly jumped toward the stage, ready to attack the mascot. A moment later, two children pushed their way out from the curtain and stood in the way of his attack. It made the moment pause in confusion, and that was all that it took. One kid whipped out what looked like a cattle prod and struck the man and straightened his chest with it. He flew back hard to the tile floor, coughing and wheezing. And then a few other children appeared alongside the mascot, all of them wearing genetic uniforms, and all of them looked like they were emotionally disconnected to whatever the heck was going on. Remember to play nice, the walrus chuckled. Just as he had finished, we heard a buzz and the doors to the cafeteria had unsealed themselves. A recess. The kids all squealed as they ran back behind the curtains of not of sight. All of us that had survived the initial insanity gave each other a long stare, and then we bolted for the doors. I could see sunlight and I was ready to taste fresh air, but it was all a mirage. The moment that we stepped out to the playground, I suddenly realized that I wasn't licking the sky at all. It was some strange reflective surface that covered the entire surrounding area. It's like we're trapped in a giant fishbowl. One man had realized. I got a good look at the playground. There was plenty of equipment, all of which seemed to be in good working order, and a long tall fence with barbed wire that surrounded us on all sides. Just as the last survivor came out, the cafeteria door slammed shut. No entry until the bell rings, 
a sign set on the doors as we looked around and tried to get our bearings. This has got to be some kind of crazy dream. What is this, Lord of the Flies? A woman asked as she had approached a tall juniper tree that was growing near the center of the playground. There were names carved on it, hundreds of them and tally marks too, counting the days stuck in here. I realized as I saw that they covered the entire base of the tree. And then we heard a strange whirring noise and we watched as some of the equipment seemed to move on its own as if someone was losing it. Something tells me this is going to be worse than before. The man said as the ground below us started to shift from grass to sand. One man was standing there watching as it did and then realizing that he was sinking even as I climbed onto a jungle gym. It's quicksand. I shouted to the others. Everyone frantically ran as the sand started to swallow people whole. Half of us made it to the different pieces of equipment, using them as lifelines until the strange sand had disappeared. And then we heard a bell from the cafeteria ring and saw the children standing and beckoning us back inside. I cautiously touched the ground, looking at all the different splotches of blood that were trailing the grounds and I swallowed my breath. Something told me that there would not be any graduating ceremony anytime soon. We all lined up on a brick wall with bleachers facing opposite of us in what looks like an old school gymnasium. This entire place has been built to resemble the type of places that we went to as children. But I know that it can't be the same thing, considering all the insane stuff we have endured thus far. There are still plenty of us alive, but from the moment that we stepped into the gym, I realized that probably wouldn't last long. The children that seemingly were in charge of this place lined up on either side of the squeaky clean tile floor. All of them were holding a bright and shiny red leather ball. I knew immediately what we're going to play, even as one boy steps up to the middle and holds the ball up. P.E. will include dodgeball, jump rope, and then a physical fitness class. Remember to do your best. I'm so sore from the other incidents that I wonder if I'll even have the ability to make it through these unscathed. But I know that I don't have a choice. We work together and we can make it out of here. The petite girl next to me said as a whistle was blown. A second later, the spheres the children were holding changed from harmless, ordinary dodgeballs to spiky, dangerous, urchin-type objects. I knew one hit from those sharp protrusions would likely kill us if it struck a vital organ. Immediately, the children began to hurl the dense weapons towards us, the heavy balls surprisingly bouncing and moving across the gym floor with ease. We had little chance to do much else besides run. Toward the bleachers, one man shouted excitedly. A woman beside him was struck in the head with the spiky object, the full force of the needles piercing her face and knocking her down. As soon as it did, I also noticed that the needle seemed to latch onto her cheek, preventing her from being able to remove it. A moment later as we ran... I realized why that was. We heard this soft, rhythmic beeping noise coming from the dodgeball. It got faster and faster as I understood it was counting down. And then the latched weapon exploded directly on the woman's face, ending her instantly. 
A man to the right of us was a little luckier, if you consider the loss of a limb better than dying, and his right leg was blown up from the force of another object. As he hobbled and crawled toward the bleachers, he begged the children to stop, but they all looked at him with emotionless eyes and then raised their weapons, smashing it down on his pleading body. We turned away before the explosion caused them to scatter across the gym. This is madness. A woman snarled as she rushed toward one of the children. I watched as the dodgeball struck her straight into the chest, but she kept running, tackling one of the children. To my horror, the bomb went off, taking them both out. And then a sharp alarm noise came overhead, and all of the children stopped what they were doing. A moment later, the mascot entered, the ridiculous costume creature, waddling over to where the kid had died and examining the scene. It occurred to me that the children seemed to be in awe of the mascot, as though awaiting its order. Was it the one that was really in control here? Looks like all of you will be getting detention, it said in that same no voice. Was it even human? Enough of this. Who's in charge here? One man snapped. He stepped toward the walrus boldly and I fully expected to see that the children might attack again. But instead, the stuffed walrus held up a flipper and kept them at bay, remarking, All class members who make it to the end of the day will be hearing an important message from the principal at our award ceremony. I think this thing is just a freaking robot, the girl commented. I realized that I felt silly for not even thinking of that a moment ago, and watched as the walrus left with the remains of the child. Whoever was running the show clearly cared a little about the kids that were here, but why none of them seemed to be remotely acting like regular children was beyond me. And before I really had a chance to even ponder it, the main kid in charge announced that we were beginning the next activity. Please choose a partner for jump rope. The children ordered. I looked toward the girl, figuring that with her slim figure it was a safe bet that she could make it through to the next game. I'm John, by the way. I offered my hand out to her. Why does it matter? We're probably going to die in here anyway. She said as she refused my friendship, I added. I'm only going to partner with you to make sure I make it to the next activity alive. The others that were still alive did the same and then we were placed in the center of the floor, and the children brought out a normal-looking rope that they extended between our feet. As an added challenge, they next bound our feet with chains, and one older girl in the group commented, We want you to act as a team. As they came up to me, I got a good look at the boy that was chaining me down and saw that he had a tattoo on his ankle. What's your name? I whispered to him. Those sorts of things don't matter here. He answered back. I tried to look for some spark of humanity left in him, and wondered briefly if any of these kids were even real either. Was the entire facility run by lifelike drones? The whistle pierced the air a second later and the rope began to move. Quickly, my partner and I jumped in. I matched a rhythm, worried about what would happen if we missed. A moment later, the rope caught on fire the burning heat making me begin to sweat, 
as the kids strategically made their rope move faster at a steady pace. The girl and I did a good job for a short minute, but then as they began to speed up, the flames would hit our ankles almost every jump. It made me want to cripple over in pain. Two women behind us tripped from the rope and were burnt badly, and they fell down on the floor, begging the children to stop. Where are your parents? Why are you doing this? Thankfully, it seemed as though death was not their immediate fate, as the children moved on to other participants and started to perform a double dodge with their other members, making it twice as hard to avoid the flaming rope as they sped up. I could hardly keep going, even after two minutes, and the heat seemed to get even more intense. Finally, after about half of our group was hit by the blazing weapon, they moved on to the next activity. All of the remaining adults that hadn't been burned were told to wait in the locker room for further instruction. As we were huddled inside the tight space and the doors were locked, I realized that this was the first time since the playground that we were all alone. If anyone has any ideas on how to get out of here, it's appreciated. The girl commented as she rubbed her sore ankles. I was in so much pain that my entire body felt numb. I had no idea if that was a blessing or a curse to be honest. The weird mascot mentioned in no word ceremony later, probably back at the cafeteria, but I think that I saw a main office near the front of the building. I bet you anything there's a control room up there. Someone must be in charge of telling these children what to do, a man said. And how do you suggest that we get there? Seems every move we make is monitored, I asked. We'll work together, just like I said. These are just kids. They can't stop us if we use force, the girl offered. A woman next to her shuffled her feet uncomfortably. I don't know if I can justify doing that to kids. It's likely they have been brainwashed to obey. We shouldn't be hurting them even if they're doing this to us, she admitted. I felt the same, but I didn't say a word. It was clear the majority was ready for this nightmare to end. If we can get the people in charge to end this idiocy, maybe it'll save the kids too. The needs of the many will be accomplished by just a few, the man argued. You're just speculating. We don't even know if any of this will work, another said. Soon, the locker room burst into an argument, and the doors slammed open a second later and one of the older children gave us a glare. The physical fitness test will now begin, she announced, leading us back to the gym. All of the adults that had suffered from injuries were gone and now in the middle of the floor. I saw that while the actual tile was missing. I even rubbed my eyes to be sure that I wasn't imagining things. It was in fact cut off by what looked like a bottomless hole. A chasm that cut through the whole area. I tried to look down and see if there was anything below, but it seemed to stretch on for miles, perhaps into some furnace below. And dangling over the pit was a robe, which seemed to be covered with oil to make the climb even more difficult. Did the children even understand they were literally making us risk our lives? I was placed in front of the line and I waited as the bell rang. The rope was only a few feet in front of me, but I still had to make a running start for it. 
Leaping out above the pit, I gripped onto the slippery rope and quickly started to climb. Even with the oily surface, it was still possible for me to ascend, but not easily. I could hear the others actually cheering me on as I tried to not look down. But just when I thought that I might make it, the game changed and something above me fell through the roof vents. Needles. Sharp pointed ends struck my head and against my hands as I clung to the rope and shivered in pain. It wouldn't be long before I lost my grip entirely. My only chance was to try and swing back toward the edge. I started to shift my body weight as I slid down the rope. My hands sweaty in the onslaught of falling needles, making my nerves begin to stress and ache. Just as I had made the third swing, I let go, barely grabbing the edge. The others rushed to help, but the children blocked them. If I was going to survive, it would have to be on my own. Desperately, I clawed my way up the side, gasping for breath as I collapsed to the ground and looked down at the pit. This is insane. I can barely even stand up from this. I moaned as I looked at my shaking palms. The needles had hurt more than I had realized. The children looked at me and then the oldest one in charge ordered, Take him to the nurse. Before I knew what was happening, I was escorted out of the gym by several larger kids toward the office that the one man had speculated we might be able to use as an escape. A bag was placed over my head before they marched me down the hall, shoving me rudely as they moved forward. Eventually, I was placed in a chair and my hands were bound with a zip tie, and then the bag was removed and I found myself staring at another adult, somebody that was running this whole thing. She gave me a fiendish smirk and said, Looks like you thought you were going home early. The nurse administered some kind of shot directly into my bloodstream without even bothering to tell me what it was for. As I watched the needle press into my body, I was sure that I was about to die. Instead of a quick death like the other adults here, it would be slow and this strange woman would revel in my suffering. Immediately, I started to sweat and feel faint, my lips clammy as I begged her to stop. The entire room felt dizzy and then at last, she tossed the needle aside into a sharps container and commented, My, you are certainly a squealer, aren't you? I was panting, hardly able to see or speak coherently, but it didn't matter. She was going to make me listen to her strange ramblings. You have been brought here for a reason, student, 6091, and that is to prove yourself worthy of readmission to society. Given your skills so far in our school activities, you stand in a high probability of being a graduate of our program. She commented as she pulled a file from a nearby metallic cabinet and read off my life as though I had died long ago. John Reeder is age 32, a single father living in the suburbs of Chicago. You have two children, David and Susanna, ages 8 and 4 respectively. You work as an auto mechanic and enjoy chess matches and hiking in your spare time. She commented as she slid the profile across to me. Does all of this sound accurate? Despite how parched I was, I managed to give her a whispered reply. I have no idea what you want, but once I get out of these bonds, 
I swear that I'll kill you. She leaned over toward me, smiling quietly before smacking me across the face with her gloved hand. You will learn that we do not tolerate insubordination in this facility of any kind. Do I need to remind you why you're here? She snapped. She turned the folder over to the next page which showed photographs of me having drinks with friends, spending time at work at long hours and not coming home to be with my family. Things that I had felt guilty for over the past six months. Bad habits that I was struggling to cope with. And here they were on display as crimes. My sins that had landed me in this place. You are fortunate that the charges aren't more severe, or we wouldn't even be having this conversation. You have forsaken your family, Mr. Readers. You have fallen into a lifestyle of pleasure rather than responsibility. As a result, you squander what money you earn and your children starve. You're a poor excuse for a father and therefore unfit to return to being a parent until you're taught a proper education. I didn't fully comprehend what she was saying, but I gathered that this prison was a place for people like me to be rehabilitated under whatever strict guidelines they enforced. A second chance according to their standards to be a better person. And if we failed to be strong enough, then a deadly fate awaited us. I knew her logic about health and recovery and being a good parent didn't line up with the atrocities that I had seen her so far, but I was too frightened to even correct her. When is this graduation ceremony? I asked. Tonight after the final period, we will gather our students together in the band hall for a celebration and announce the graduates. But to make it there, I need to make sure that you are on equal footing with the others. Hence the need for your little injection, she commented. I looked toward the needle, wondering what exactly she had dosed me with, as a bell rung and the nurse stood up, pleasantly smiling. Enjoy the rest of your school day, Mr. Readers. I hope to see you again tonight. I think if you apply yourself to your education, you will go far, she said. I was marched by children back down the hallway, confused and disoriented even without a bag over my head, as we passed by what looked like class photographs of previous graduates. As I paused to look at the numerous alumni, it occurred to me this secretive program had been running for quite some time undetected. Who could be handling all of the finances and how did they even find people to be candidates for their experimental prison? Another sobering fact was evident about the photographs. Less than half a dozen persons were in each picture. The rest of the seats were empty. Meaning the chance of survival here was slim. Perhaps not impossible. Still, I had to think of my own two children and fight to survive as long as I could. Even if it did mean against the others. I thought as I was escorted into an art studio. There were perhaps only nine of us left. And as soon as I had entered the classroom, each of them viewed me with new suspicion. I mean, it's easy to guess why. I had been given special privileges to not go through with the remainder of the fitness test. And that must mean that they think I'm involved in whatever is going on. I thought as the children ordered me to take a seat near one of the easels. Our teacher, the strange emotionless costumed walrus, 
immediately give us instructions on on the assignment. Each of you is filled with inspiration, aspiring dreams that are waiting to burst forth. Here we get the chance to express ourselves and show our achievements on the campus. He explained as the children locked the doors. Whatever was about to happen, I knew good and well it was not going to be as pleasant as he claimed. Under your desk, you will find the tools you need to create a masterpiece. Something that truly speaks to us and helps to see what type of artist and person you really are. The mascot said. All of us reached down to take a small black bag from the underside of the desk, unzipping it to reveal razor blades and other sharp objects that typically people would use for other things and the costume mascot explained. You have 30 minutes to put your sweat, tears, and especially your own blood into your work. Those that put in the most effort will get to move forward to the next class. So try your hardest and work for a better grade than your classmates. Immediately, a timer was started above his head and I looked at the objects in horror, realizing that he expected us to actually use ourselves as paint for the project. The others hesitated and started using the objects on their skin, wincing and shrieking as the red dribbled onto the paper. One woman had a different type of masterpiece than mine though and immediately lashed out toward one of the other adults, taking them down to the ground. Surprisingly, the costumed mascot did nothing to stop it, and after she had taken out her art partner, the woman had announced, I found out that she had been sleeping with my husband, so this is my artist's depiction of what I want to do to him. The mascot nodded and announced, You get a 90. Head for the music room and enjoy your extra recess. She dropped the object and stepped over the body, leaving the rest of us confused and befuddled, but also no less suspicious of each other. What about you, John? What did you do? The petite woman that I had talked to earlier asked as she held the blade safely in between her knuckles. I couldn't tell if she intended to do the same thing to me as well. None of us could be certain what the others were capable of. As I looked down at the mess, though, I began to dizzy and I stumbled across the room to vomit. It had to be the side effects of whatever the nurse had given me, designated to make me incapable of completing this task. I realized as I vomited in the trash can several times and felt the room begin to spin. One man tried to approach to help, but I pushed him away uncertain if those in charge would view it as cheating. I needed to act fast and the only thing that I could think of was to use the object against myself and threaten to do it. If this is really supposed to be about rehabilitation, then let the rest live. Let us get out of here, I demanded. The children actually seemed to show emotion for a split second as I held the object against my body where I knew the most red could be spilled. It was a bluff, but I needed to see if my guest was right about this demented facility. Would they allow me to survive simply because of their twisted moral code? That will be enough, the mascot bellowed, motioning for everyone in the class to stop. He went from desk to desk to look at the artwork, supposedly grading each and every one of us as though what really mattered. It felt like our survival was going to be the toss of the dice. Myself, the petite woman, and two others were told that we could head to the music hall. 
I knew that meant that the others wouldn't make it, and as the object was wrestled from my hand, I considered trying to stand up for them. I have to be able to make it back to my own family. I kept reminding myself as I felt the strangest shout the nurse had given me start to take effect. If I don't push forward, it will all be for nothing. Somehow I got the impression the others were told to leave, had the same guilty conscience and we all reluctantly were led away. Even as the art studio door is closed and we heard the ones left behind begging for their lives. A roar of gunfire and paintballs filled the air, and we heard their screams grow higher almost to a crescendo, until at last everything became silent. And then paint and red mixed together, drained from underneath the door, a sickening feeling in the bottom of my stomach as I realized that the four of us were the only ones still standing for this final round. We were taken to a music hall where the children told us to pick out an instrument and I found myself hardly able to stand up from another bout of nausea. And then as I finally reached the flute stand near the middle of the class, I saw the playbook was open to a song that told me my suspicion was right. We were nearly at the end of this mad game. They were going to force us to play the ceremonial orchestra, followed by a funeral procession theme. Slow, soothing music began to play as all of us took our seats and watched the children line up against the wall. Despite the pretense that everything was fine, I knew good and well that only a few of us would survive this final test. I didn't know the people alongside me in this class, but I still couldn't believe that all of them might be gone in a few minutes. As the music got a little faster, the children ordered us to start playing and we all did our best to keep up. Now I've never ever had a talent for music, but I tried my hardest to appease them even as I felt the room beginning to move. Everything was suddenly shifting around as we kept playing, the room rotating as we saw behind the walls, a row of strange small holes that had sharp spikes poking straight out. I knew that if we stayed where we were sitting at the moment, we would be impaled in only a matter of seconds so immediately I tried to stand only for something to shock me and cause me to collapse back into my seat. The performance mustn't stop, a child said as the room kept rotating. We all reluctantly played and as we did, I noticed the room begin to move the other way. Someone was actually getting the music right. Keep playing correctly, I shouted to the woman. She had a trombone and I could tell that she was exhausted but we couldn't afford any mistakes. One man was about to be hit by the deadly darts and he tried to flee, only for the agonizing shock to cripple him and cause him to flail backwards towards the weapon. He screamed in pain as he made contact with the spike, but it didn't finish him. We kept playing to the end of the song to keep the rest of us alive. As the chorus came to an end, the room stopped moving and the children cheered. Some even suggested an encore. I could tell that the woman who had kept us alive those few minutes wouldn't have the strength to play again, and thankfully the encore wasn't required. To my surprise, as we were moved from the band hall toward the mess hall, I saw the nurse from earlier waiting for us with what looked like awards. Since there were only three of us left, I was hoping this meant that all of us would get the chance to make it out of here, but I noticed she was only carrying two awards. One of us would be put to the test a final time, 
I realized as we were told to stand at the center of the stage. All of you have managed to come so far in this program, and we can't thank you enough for all of your hard work to reach the top of your class, the nurse had announced. As she was talking, I saw that the auditorium was filling up with children. I was surprised to see that there were so many of them. At first, it was just a dozen, but then I realized that there were hundreds of them. Did they all live here in this underground place? How did they survive? Before we pass out the awards, I think it's time for a quick snack for all of you. The nurse said as doors at the back of the cafeteria opened and I saw more adults rolling in cards. I held my nose as the stench of rotting meat overpowered me, and I saw that they were actually being fed, the bodies of all the other adults that hadn't made it this far. The children didn't even wait for a serving bell. They growled and snapped at one another to grab a piece of the chopped up bodies and they chewed it as fast as they could. I felt like I was about to throw up again by watching what was happening. Now I knew what these children were being turned into. Monsters. I didn't care to have any other questions answered. Too sickened by the realization that if we had lost, we would be in that meal as well. To my surprise, the petite woman that had been here since the beginning reached for my hand. Her eyes filled with tears as we listened to the children eat the bodies of our competition. My name is Sam, by the way. She whispered as her lips trembled and the children finished the last bits of meat. For a moment, there was a connection between us. A mutual understanding that we didn't deserve this treatment, despite whatever issues we had in our real life. Nothing could even come close to this level. And then, uh, the nurse got out a raffle ball and started to spin it, the numbers clattering around as the hungry children waited to hear who would be crowned the champion. I didn't have to guess what would happen to the loser. Our graduate in this class is none other than John Readers. Step up here, John, she announced. Immediately, the children moved towards Sam and to the others, ready to pull down and eat them as well. I tried my best to hold on to her for as long as I could, her screaming and kicking the entire time. You will forget about this place soon enough, John. I knew you would make it. Come, as we get you ready to leave, there is one final thing I need to show you, the nurse ordered. I tried to keep from looking as the children trampled and attacked my friends. I was so traumatized by the event, I found myself shaking as I moved towards the back hallway. I'm sure by now you recognize that this entire process was orchestrated to make you a better person, but we couldn't have done this without people that were in predicaments just like yours. Don and their luck, angry with loved ones, scorned. We want to offer you the chance to be able to recommend a future student to us, she said, passing me a small pamphlet. You mean someone to send here to die, I realized. Well, if they can survive her test, they'll be fine, she commented softly. She soon led me to what looked like an old elevator that had a key code to prevent anyone from entering, and as she got me ready to leave, she added, Just think over all that you have learned here, and I'm sure you'll see the benefits to our program. And then she injected me with another dosage, a strong sedative this time, 
and pushed me into the elevator. I couldn't even open my mouth to scream as the door slammed shut and I found myself getting dizzy. The last thing I remember was the elevator rising toward the surface. When I did wake up, I was in the middle of a heavily wooded area. It felt surreal to imagine that everything I experienced was real. The pamphlet the nurse had given me was more than enough proof. In addition, the wound on my wrist was all stitched up. I walked for about a mile to the road and from there I hitchhiked. Where to? A passing motorist had asked. They actually looked a bit nervous to help me and it was then I realized that I stole the clothes from the prison underground. I probably looked like an escaped convict. I told them to take me to the nearest police station. I told them my story from start to finish. I showed them the wound on my wrist. I also insisted that they could check my clothing for fingerprints and I gave them my pamphlet. There was nothing that matched any known criminals in their database. It suddenly occurred to me that this was likely why they had trained the children to be their foot soldiers. None of them would be traced, and likely all of them had been taken at infancy. I thanked the officers for their time and managed to get a ride home from one of them. I was desperate to see my children again. Once I got home, I made a promise to them that I would be a better father. I can only hope that time will erase some of the awful memories of school. I would like to extend a large thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring this week's podcast. If you're a fan of the show, you probably heard me talk about HelloFresh before. I just want to reiterate that these guys are legit and they really do make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. There's a reason they're America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh makes sure to deliver fresh, quality produce right from the farm to your door in less than a week, so you can savor summer flavors right from home. They also give you 30 dinner recipes to choose from every single week, which allows for an awesome amount of variety and customization. Just a couple nights ago, I whipped up a creamy mushroom alfredo that was honestly better than most restaurants that I've had pasta at. I can't recommend HelloFresh enough. And I love the feeling of self-satisfaction for making my own meals as opposed to ordering them in. And on top of that, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh. And with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands and now my listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with me. Make sure to go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Thank you to HelloFresh for being a continued sponsor of the podcast. We thought our emergency landing was a success until we got out of the plane. Written by Odd Directions The nightmare began 30,000 feet above the Atlantic Ocean. I had just come back to our seats from the toilet with my five-year-old son. It had all happened so quickly. I reckon most passengers didn't even see the Cessna that appeared out of nowhere. They just felt our plane's deep turn to avoid a collision. 
I, however, saw these smaller aircraft swish past us, just a few meters away from crashing right into us. Being a pilot myself, I knew something wasn't right about this, especially not at this altitude. My hands were shaking from the close call, but the rest of the passengers, including my husband, only chuckled nervously. They didn't realize that we had just been seconds from a certain death. Tim sensed how worried I was and begged me to explain what had just happened. I tried to comfort him the best that I could, while also trying to get a hold of one of the flight attendants to get some answers. Where did that business jet come from? I asked. That was extremely dangerous. I was interrupted by strong turbulence. The flight attendant almost fell to the floor, but she managed to remain standing by holding on to my husband's seat. The seatbelt sign turned on followed by the clicking sound of everyone strapping themselves in. Ma'am, the attendant said and ignored my concern. Please put your seatbelt on. Oh, it's nothing to worry about, my husband said as he put in a seatbelt. Relax, he laughed. You know, out of all people, I didn't think you would be afraid of a little turbulence. We almost died, Robert, I growled. My God... The captain finally addressed the passengers. We're having some problem with the navigation. The co-pilot could be heard in the background, whispering something with a concerned voice. A small discussion between them interrupted, seemingly agitated, followed by an, Oh my god. Before the pilot spoke again, Prepare for an emergency landing. I helped Tim put on his seatbelt, fearing the worst, and then I looked out the window. It was hard to see anything. It looked like we were flying through a gray overcast, which should have been impossible given how clear it had been outside just moments ago. Black raindrops struck the window, leaving brownish trails behind them as they blew to the side. This was all wrong. Tim wanted me to hold him, but there was no way for him to reach me from his seat. He kept asking if we were going to crash, something that I had spent days convincing him wouldn't happen. Now I wasn't so sure anymore, but even so, I told him no, of course not. Man, we didn't, but I no longer know if that was a good thing. The plane touched down on a runway and slowly rolled into an impressively large metropolitan airport. Phew, my Robert said and rested his hand on Tim's shoulder. What a relief, huh? We made it. I gotta admit, I was a little worried there myself for a moment. There's just one problem, I said. Where are we? The screen showing our current location had turned off and even though I knew most large airports in the country, I couldn't recognize any of these structures outside of the window. And there shouldn't have been any airports of this size, anywhere close to where we were anyway. This is the captain speaking. It came from the PA, followed by a long pause. So, just a small update on our situation. Earlier, we had to make an invasive maneuver to avoid a collision with a smaller aircraft. That was the sharp turn that you had experienced. After that, we found ourselves in some bad weather conditions resulting in turbulence, and the power had went out. Fortunately, we saw this runway and managed a forced landing. We're still out of power at the moment, but we're hoping that someone will assist us soon. 
Please remain in your seats until further notice, and thank you for your cooperation. And we waited and waited and waited. Just like everyone else, I tried to get a glimpse of what was going on outside of the plane. I couldn't figure out the reason as to why a fully operating airport, as big as LAX from what I could tell, wouldn't immediately come to our rescue. The lights were clearly on inside the building, so there was no reason to assume that no one was there. And yet no one came. I tried to spot movement inside the windows of the terminal and the control tower through the gray fog and the dirty drizzle. But aside from a flickering fluorescent light here and there, I saw nothing. What's going on, Mom? My son had said. Why aren't they letting us out? It was at that moment the pilots must have given up on their attempts at getting in touch with the controllers. They both came out from the cockpit, pale and sweaty behind their fragile facade of confidence, and they instructed two of the flight attendants to open the emergency exit and inflate the evacuation slide. It was finally time to leave the airplane. My husband took our luggage while I carried Tim whispering into his ear that everything was going to be alright. And up until this point, I really believed that. But nothing could have been further from the truth. At first, I couldn't tell what it was that made everything feel off outside, but then it dawned on me. There were no winds. The air was just as still as you would have expected inside a poorly ventilated room. It brought about the uncanny sensation of being inside and outside at the same time. An unnatural experience only enlarged by the dark rain pattering against the pavement and the tepid, motionless atmosphere carried with it a musty odor that brought to mind the furthest reaches of a cave. The buildings appeared as dark silhouettes inside the oppressive fog, even though we stood quite close to them, and the only thing that could be seen further away was indistinct shapes of dark, treeless hills. Needless to say, this was by far the most desolate place that I had ever had the misfortune to end up in. Among the concerned whispers around us, my husband yelled hello. The echo traveled under the fog, but not much further. The crew remained in authority, even though they were equally lost as the rest of us, and led us to the doors to the baggage reclaim area. A young man helped my husband with one of our bags when he saw him struggling, and we exchanged a few words with him. He was on his way home from spring break after some heavy partying. It was the kind of encounter that you wouldn't remember, but because of how things had progressed from here, this particular incident had etched itself in my memory. I have come to hate that young man, even though he didn't really do anything wrong. At first, we couldn't get the doors opened, which caused unease to spread among us. After all, this place didn't just induce a dread in me, but in all of us. A few people banged on the doors while another group, friends by the look of it, decided to separate from the rest of us in an attempt to find another entrance. And that's when it happened. One of them was the young man, and he still had our bag in his hands. My husband ran after him, even though I yelled at him that it wasn't important, and disappeared around the corner. 
A few minutes later, three of the friends opened the door for us from the inside, but my husband was nowhere to be seen. Where are the rest? The co-pilot had asked. Did you find anyone else? Where's Robert? I asked. My husband. He ran up to you and... We got separated on the way back, one of them had said. Something caught their attention. Some kind of noise, I think. We looked for them for hours, but... That doesn't make any sense. An elderly lady protested. You only left moments ago. Nothing made sense here, I thought. They're still here somewhere, the captain said. We'll find them. It was just as empty inside. I would go as far as to say completely lifeless, but not as silent. There was the buzzing from the lights in the ceiling. The humming from these soda machines the whir from the ventilation, and the repetitive rumbling from an escalator nearby. The airport wasn't closed. It was, for lack of a better word, abandoned. Although, it felt just as if it had never been occupied in the first place, that it had always been like this, forever locked inside the everlasting gloom outside. My legs hurt, my son complained. I'm tired of walking. I picked him up and held him tight as we wandered through the airport. It became more and more apparent that there was no one here beside us. It was all vacant. The check-in desks, the cafes, the shops, and the gates. The terminal stretched out in front of us like a giant cave of steel. Large windows meant to let the sunlight inside. Now only kept the gray murk outside. I yelled my husband's name as soon as we had entered a new room, but to no avail, and my son continued to cry about the pain in his legs. We sat down at a cafe. It was time for us to acknowledge what everyone had already whispered to their closest, that this place, not just the airport but the world outside as well, was beyond our comprehension. A middle-aged man, loosening up his tie, finally spoke the words, this place isn't natural. He finally removed his tie and threw it at the floor. I kept my eye on the screen, showing our position. We were nowhere near land. This place, I'm telling you, it shouldn't exist. We shouldn't be here, no one should. Uh, I mean, I don't know. He fell silent for a moment. I don't think we're anywhere on Earth. Purgatory, the elderly woman whispered under her breath. I bet we actually collided with that small airplane, and this airport is nothing more and nothing less than a divine symbolic representation of the way station between the two. My son cried out in pain. Mommy, please, mommy. He kicked with his legs in agony, vainly trying to escape the egg. Make it stop, please. I realized that he wasn't just tired from walking. It was something else. But not even a man who claimed he was a doctor could see anything wrong with his legs. He said that it had to be growing pains, and thus nothing to worry about, but that he would need to give him an x-ray to rule out anything else, which of, of course, was impossible. After a while, Tim thankfully calmed down, and I kissed his sweaty forehead with a smile of relief. I don't think this is the afterlife. One of the friends said and pointed at my son. 
Common sense what a small child have to atone for. This is something else entirely. Some kind of glitch in the matrix, you know what I mean. I think this airport got stuck here just like us. Although, I guess we would have heard about an entire airport vanishing. But still, I'm convinced this is just some random interdimensional twaddle. The captain, the man that we had come to look up to in these dire circumstances, broke down in tears in front of us. One of the flight attendants laid her hands around him, doing her best to comfort him. I'm so sorry, he said. Don't blame the rest of the crew. I ordered them not to say anything. I just didn't want you to panic. But we saw it. There was no time to avoid it. Avoid what? The man who had discarded his tie had asked. What did you see? Well, it's hard to explain, the captain said. It was like a gray line, a thin, one-dimensional line suspended in the air. It appeared right in front of us after we had turned to avoid the other plane. And the moment that we flew into it, well, that's when we ended up here. We didn't see much through the windows. It was like flying through a never-ending rain cloud. And then we saw the faint lights coming from the runway. So, you're right. This isn't Earth. As to what it is, my guess is as good as yours. And two of the flight attendants who up until now had put all hope in their captain knowing what to do, sobbed gently. I thought about my son and what would become of him if he never managed to escape our empty prison. And I thought of Robert, about where he might have ended up and if I would ever see him again. But it didn't make much sense that I wouldn't, so I tried not to worry. He was here somewhere, I knew it. The hunger became an issue and although some of us were skeptical of the idea, it was decided that we would eat the food on display in the cafe. As far as we knew, it could have been there forever. But after much hesitation, before anyone dared take the first bite, we discovered that there was nothing wrong with it. When we continued to look for the others, and Tim cried and cried, he was still in pain. I held him close and grabbed his little restless legs to stop him from kicking, but there was nothing that I could do. He cried for his father. By now he knew that he was gone. We spent hours going from empty room to empty room until we had found each and every one of them. That's when we had to accept that the others, including the love of my life, had in fact disappeared from the airport. I fell on my knees with my son in my arms, bawling. It was my turn to break down now. The elderly woman touched my shoulder and looked down at me with her old, sunken eyes. He has started his journey, she said in a comforting voice. He's been forgiven. We couldn't tell the time. The sun or whatever it was that produced the gray tinged light coming down through the endless mist never sat. One hour felt like a second. A second felt like an hour. A few of us joined the old woman in prayer, hoping for the miracle she had promised them, while some of us kept on speculating about parallel worlds. But I only tended to my little boy and his aching legs, and I only prayed for him to get better and for both of us to be reunited with Robert, not in heaven but in the flesh. I noticed that my son was slightly taller. I pulled up his trousers for the second time since the cafe. 
By now, to my absolute dread, I noticed these stretched marks crawling up his pale skin. The doctor had never seen anything like it before and could only offer him some of his own painkillers so that my son could sleep. What is happening to my son? I cried. Why him, oh God, why him? But no one said a word, and the old woman looked away as if she didn't want to face the kind of suffering her God would never allow. Days became weeks. My son's legs grew out of proportion. Nothing else in his body changed. His skinny legs just kept getting longer and longer and longer. He couldn't walk on his own anymore and I had to put him inside a luggage car. The pain from the rapid growth that came and went. At times, he was merely suffering in silence. At other times, he screamed himself unconscious. And all I could do was to feed him more and more painkillers, hoping that they wouldn't run out soon. We found a body in a restroom. I had recognized it. It was the young man who had helped my husband with the bag. His body was mummified, just as if he had died thousands of years ago. The doctor made the observation that someone had stomped on top of his chest, collapsing his ribcage. He suggested it was the reason behind his demise, but there was no way to truly be sure. We buried him in the gray mud between the runways, under the never-ending black rain. By now, my son's legs had grown by at least three feet. Now and then, a spasm spread through them, making him kick in the air. It was all made worse by the fact that there was no explanation for his condition. It had just snuck up on him out of nowhere and for no reason at all. But I knew that it had to do with this place. Somehow, it was the fault of this soul-crushingly despondent plane of existence. At this point, the others avoided getting too close to us. No one said anything, but I could see it behind the pity in their eyes. They were afraid of my son. He was slowly turning into something they all recognized from their nightmares, and they secretly detested. If not him personally, so at least his more and more abhorrent manifestation... But from the perspective of my poor child, what difference did it make? A few days later, or maybe it was weeks, I saw Robert. He was driving a tug across the runway, armed with a metal pipe resembling a lance. I ran outside, but by the time that I got there, he was already gone. Still, I was happy. At least as happy as I could be under the downcast circumstances. He was alive. It was just a matter of time, I thought, before we would be reunited. And then came the night my son stood up. We were all sleeping on the blue, fitted carpet in the waiting hall outside of the gates when it had happened. I don't know why I woke up at that moment. Perhaps it was my maternal instinct or perhaps simply the wish of this world. I saw my son, now twelve feet tall his five-year-old body balancing on top of his tall legs as a silhouette against the gray fog outside of the windows. I sneaked up to him, trying not to wake the others. Mom, he said looking down at me, what's happening? Are you okay? I asked. Doesn't it hurt anymore? No, he said but sobbed nonetheless. I'm scared. I know, I said. It's going to be alright. It's just a matter of time now until Robert finds us. 
He's out there, and now when you can walk. But mommy, he whispered between his sobs as he put his hands in the ceiling to support himself. I can't. He paused and tried to hold his tears back. Don't worry, sweetheart. Let's go back to sleep now and... But that's the thing, mommy. I can't. Why is that? I asked. What do you mean, love? Because I woke up like this. Standing. A chill went down my spine. And then his legs took a few steps. It's not me, mommy. The doctor woke up. Oh my. He didn't have time to say anything else. My son, or his legs rather, quickly stomped his face in with an unnatural forest. The red erupted from the crater like a fountain, raining down on those sleeping next to him. The room filled with screams. My son cried on top of his stilt-like legs while they danced around, crushing and piercing everyone who wasn't lucky enough to get out of the way. I didn't want to leave him, and yet I ran with the others. It was only temporary, I thought so that I could figure out a way to help him. But my son didn't know that. He cried for me bawling as the legs walked away with him. From now on, we were hunted, and the melancholy existence that we had lived so far turned into a constant terror. I wanted to find something to use to help my son, a saw or some similar tool that I could use to remove the abomination that his legs had become but all I found was a large carving knife inside a restaurant kitchen. I grabbed it with trembling hands. Somehow, I had to immobilize my son and then use all my strength to hack his legs off. For that, I needed help, but those who had survived up until now, they weren't willing. I'm sorry, the captain said. It's too dangerous. He still carried some authority, especially now when he said what everybody wanted to hear but didn't dare say themselves. I'll help you, the old lady said. Your boy is possessed and he needs to be freed. I think that is our mission. Those who help him will go to heaven. I hugged her fragile body, grateful for her bravery, but I couldn't imagine in what way she could help me. My only hope was finding my husband. Together with him... There would at least be some hope. Until then, all I could do was follow the others. Mommy, my son yelled between his sobs. Where are you? I'm afraid. He was close, which meant that we had to run again. Mommy, he begged. Help. But there was nothing that I could do. There's nothing worse for a parent than to be useless when they hear their own child call for help. But such was my predicament. I was utterly powerless. All I could do was yell back to him, in the hopes that my voice would give him some shimmer of comfort in his otherwise perilous state. I'm here, my sweet little baby. I'm here and I love you. I only saw my son whenever he got close enough. When his long and yet still childlike legs carried him towards us in giant leaves. I saw him when his legs caught one of the flight attendants. The captain threw a chair at him to protect her. I yelled for him to wait, to try not to hurt my son in the process, but of course no one listened to me. My son fell but the legs crawled forward, dragging him on the floor behind themselves, and they caught the young woman like two erratic snakes working in tandem. 
The captain screamed out in terror as he watched her die with bloodshot eyes staring into nothing, and my son cried as he helplessly tried to crawl away from his own legs. He was only five, and even though none of this was of his making, I could see the guilt on his innocent face. All the lives lost under his feet weighed down on his until recently spotless conscience. I wanted to hold him. I wanted to whisper in his ear that it wasn't his fault. And I wanted to cut off those dang cursed legs. I left the group when they began making plans on how to kill my son. The old lady was the only one coming with me. She didn't believe in their utilitarian reasoning. And just like that, they all vanished from the airport just like my husband had done. At first, I thought that I would never see my son again, that he too had vanished, but then I heard him, like an echo from around the corner, yelling for me. He never appeared, though. We stumbled upon a few bodies. They belonged to the group that we had just abandoned. It looked like they had been dead for a long time, maybe more than a year, although there was very little decomposition, seeing that there weren't any organisms to feast on the bodies other than the ones already inside them, so it was difficult to tell for how long they had been dead. By now it was clear to me that time didn't move in one direction here. It wasn't a river like back home, but rather a tree. It took another month until we ended up on my husband's branch. It wasn't a happy reunion, even though I was tremendously relieved to finally have him to my side again. My son, now 24 feet tall, fought him and his group in the muddy rain. The captain was with them, unlike the rest of them, an old man now, and from the window inside the terminal, I could see that they were trying to fight off my son, while entering a smaller airplane that they had somehow managed to get up and running. I didn't want to run down to the exit, fearing that I would end up on yet another branch of time, so I threw my chair at the window and I climbed down with the help of the older lady. I wanted to embrace my husband, but there was no time. My son cried on top of the legs, looking down at us. Get on the plane with the others, Robert yelled. The captain's going to fly us out of here. You don't know for how long I... He stopped himself. Just go. I gave him my knife. You have to tackle him somehow, I said. We did it once before, and then... I paused, unwilling to utter the words. And then you have to hack his legs off. It's his only chance. I boarded the plane to see who was there and if there was anything I could do for them. There weren't many of us left. One flight attendant, two young men, and the old lady. I asked how she had managed to reach the plane before me. Apparently, she had taken the stairs and arrived at the runway at an earlier time. She had stepped onto another branch. I cursed myself for not taking the stairs, but of course, there was no way for me to have known. I looked out the window. My husband and the captain tried to stave off my son with their long metal pipes. I couldn't even see Tim, just the long legs stomping around. The captain turned to my husband just for a second, and that was enough for one of the legs to pierce the side of his head with my son's tiny foot. I knew what it meant even though I didn't want to acknowledge it even to myself. My husband jumped on the tug. I ran to the door, begging him to come inside. No, he yelled, crying. 
I'll lure him away from you. No, I protested. Not after I finally found you, please. I love you, he yelled. Try to find the shimmering line in the sky. And he drove away. My son followed, wobbling on top of the dancing legs as he cried and cried and cried. I wanted to stay behind to help my family survive, but I was the only hope the others had of ever going back home. Hence, I reluctantly took the helm. I flew in the direction I remembered that we came from. The ground slowly disappeared in the gray fog. There was almost no visibility, and if it weren't for the black rain painting streaks in the windows, it would have looked like we stood perfectly still. After 15 minutes of nothingness in front of me, I began contemplating turning back, but then I finally saw it, the shimmering line. It looked like a one-dimensional rainbow. I steered us right into it. The old lady came up to me, tears running down her face. You did it, she said. You're taking us to heaven. But what appeared on the other side weren't angels. It was a Boeing 737 flying straight at us. If I had waited for only a second longer, we would have flown right into it. The Atlantic Ocean glittered in the sunlight. I turned to the old woman. No, I said. I'm taking us home. There was a viral outbreak in my town and should have wiped out everyone on the planet. Written by 10 Minute Horror. I had felt it, far off, similar to a pre-storm migraine for months. Like some force in the world had plans for us that we didn't know about but could see forming. The pregnancy had been rocky from the start, not to mention how many IVF treatments that it took. It felt like both our lives had been on some rickety train track, somehow still clinging to the edges. I mean, neither of us were ready, and we both knew it. It was like a third person was already in the room, constantly waiting to be introduced so they could talk some sense into us. Jules was getting worked to the bone at the hospital for the past year, understaffed and underpaid. She took time off as soon as she could when the pregnancy was confirmed. She told me that she had uh, similar feelings as I did, like something was coming, and not just the baby. She kept saying that she just wanted me home, on the couch, beside her at night. My hands on hers as she massaged her growing belly. That was all that she needed for comfort. I was a beat cop and dragged my feet on asking for the time off. So, fate stepped in and ushered me along in a way that I couldn't imagine. It was a Friday and I was going to talk to the staff sergeant at the end of the shift, but I had received a call to the local junior high school. There was a shooting in progress, two active shooters with small explosives. I pulled into the parking lot of the school and saw smoke billowing from the windows and fire lashing out from within. I rushed to the back doors of the school but found them chain-locked from the inside. I could see that there was a thick padlock keeping it shut. Gunfire, screams, and small explosions rang out from inside. 
Smoke was creeping out from under the doors. My radio back. They said tactical was four minutes away. Another officer, O'Reilly, was a minute out though. And to wait on him before breaching, we wouldn't be able to help the kids inside the door anyway. The IR training that we did, immediate action, rapid deployment, was very clear that in high-risk situations, our only intent was to take out the shooter, run fast and shoot straight. Early contact is key. It was a concept that came out in the wake of Columbine. First responders were no longer setting up a perimeter or even trying to help those wounded. Located and neutralizing the shooters was our lone purpose. The crying on the other side of the door had turned to whimpering. The banging had stopped. I checked the time. A minute had passed and no sign of O'Reilly. He was probably stopping at green lights. He was the type of cop who actively avoided any call that required him getting out of his cruiser. Wherever he was, I bet he was monitoring the radio, and he wouldn't show up until after Tactical had arrived. The whimpering on the other side of the door went quiet. I couldn't wait any longer. I had already waited too long. I ran back to my cruiser and got my pack. Bolt cutters, a pry bar, additional vests to protect from their high-powered rifles. I speared the pry bar into the meshy window. The glass cubed away, but I had to tear through the thick metal netting. The smoke poured out and all the sounds of the horrors inside came rushing to meet me. I could barely see inside, but managed to find the padlock and snapped it with the bolt cutters. I yanked the door open and two tiny bodies spilled out. They had been the ones that pressed against the door whimpering. They were gone now. I wanted to go home. I wanted to shut the blinds to the world and disappear forever. It would be so easy to just turn back now. Wait for tactical sense O'Reilly must have gotten lost. A scream pierced out from inside and pulled me back to the doorway. I could see more bodies hazy through the smoke. I pulled my Glock and I slid in through the door finding destruction like I couldn't imagine. My senses were overwhelmed. The air reeked of cordite so heavily that I felt like it was coating my lungs. My ears were ringing from the gunfire and explosions overhead. The smoke detectors were screeching in short bursts, adding to the ringing. Some had been shot off the ceiling, but still squeaked out a distorted alarm. And the walls, uh, the ones that I could see... It looked like they had been painted red. Smoke hung in the air like a storm cloud. The hallway floor was lined with bodies, tiny backpacks strapped to them. What a weapon can do to a body is indescribable. I walked towards the end of the hallway where a staircase led up. The gunfire and explosions were coming from the second floor, so that's where I was going. I made my way down the hall ducking just below the smoke line and keeping my eyes trained away from the floor. I was ten feet away from the staircase when the war zone upstairs went quiet. Gunfire, explosions, screams. It all muted out. Only the occasional and distorted smoke detectors pierced the silence. I kept moving. 
a new sound that startled me, causing me to nearly fire off my gun. It was a cell phone chime, muffled out from underneath one of the bodies. And then another ringtone, and another and another. A chorus of phone calls were coming in to various cell phones, and all I could think was how sad I was for the parents who would never hear their children's voices pick up on the other end, or ever again, and my heart broke for them all. All the parents who had dropped off their kids in the morning, not knowing that they were saying goodbye. And then I heard whistling, laughter, joking and talking, two voices, males, they were coming down the staircase. I took a knee to the left of the stairs and I trained my Glock on the stairway entrance. I was off to the side just enough that they wouldn't see me until after I had seen them. The laughter got closer, echoing down the halls. The whistling started again. He was reciting the tune of Pop Goes the Weasel. My finger rested against the trigger. I was ready. The laughing and whistling harmonized together now to the same tune, echoing louder and closer. I trained my gun at head level, no, chest level, two in the chest, but the first one down and then the second. But what if there's a third? Footsteps hit the last row of stairs. Two sets of footsteps, only two. My gun was hair-triggered on the entryway. Pop goes the weasel got louder, more disturbed. Two shadows appeared in the entrance. My finger hovered on the trigger but didn't pull. And then they appeared in the doorway. Both had been dressed in skeleton print suits and carried chest kits and ammo vests with additional handguns to accompany the rifles. They both appeared to be late teens, but I couldn't see their faces. The first one hand-painted on a clown face, with an exaggerated, toothy grin up his cheeks. It was frightening, as the rest of his face was smeared with red ink. The other kid had a Hannibal Lecter mask on, and it was smeared with blood, which I couldn't tell was real or fake. They saw me as soon as I saw them, but all three of us froze. I had the drop on them, my Glock already leveled at my target. They smiled and dropped their guns and toddled their wrists to be handcuffed. Arrest us. You'll be the hero, they said tauntingly. I couldn't. I couldn't take them in. I didn't think about whether they had explosive charges on them that could have been blown up, not only us, but possibly even the entire school. I didn't think about how prison would be for them for the rest of their lives if I brought them in. All I could think was how much I wanted them buried under the prison and erased from history. I put two in the smiling teen's chest and two in the Hannibal kid's chest. They both went down hard. I felt rage take over completely, and I unloaded the rest of the magazine between the two. I peppered their faces, and I didn't want them to have an open casket. I never wanted anyone to see these two again. I was put on leave as SIU came in to investigate. I was brought in multiple times. Interviews racked my days, and there was very nearly a criminal case against me by the parents of the shooters. They had a reasonable case against what I did. I just can't imagine having the nerve to bring it forward after what their children had done.
I had been off work ever since, which had been the plan before, just not in this way. Nightmares haunted me. All of them were with the two boys. I was older in the dream and somehow I knew that I had a daughter in an upstairs classroom, but I couldn't get to her. The floors were wet cement and I felt like my muscles had been stripped from my legs. The dream would always end with a chase to get to her, and I always lost. There were a few weeks where I was almost positive that I was going to jail. The lawyer had called and told me prosecution was seeking five years for each of the kids and a massive lawsuit against the forest. But in the last week, it all crumbled away. It turned out to be a pie-in-the-sky hope from the prosecution, and I was let off but put on leave with mandatory weekly visits to a behavioral psychologist to start immediately. I figured that was a fair trade, even though I was feeling more and more like I didn't belong in the forest. The investigation coming up clean was a gift and a lesson. I didn't belong there. What I was going to do now, I had no idea. I had some time to decide, and with Jules pregnant, our hands would be full for a while. With us both home now, I had seen changes in Jules as the pregnancy wore on. More and more, I would find her in the baby's room, holding up the tiny onesies over her belly the little socks and the beanie caps, looking through the picture books that we would eventually entertain her with, getting used to the sway of the rocking chair. There is a basket filled with yarn and sewing needles that Jules put together and had been learning over the past few weeks. She was embracing it all, despite the dark cloud that we had felt lingering. It was Friday, and we had gone in for Jules, a last checkup before delivery next week. I had been dreading it, thinking that something would come up, something unavoidable or unfixable. But the baby was perfect. Our little girl was healthy and ready to be delivered on her due date. On our way home from the OBGYN, I had noticed the Wakewood subway station was closed off. In fact, the whole street was. There were white vans and trucks and scientists in hazmat suits, and a strong military presence. Normally, I wouldn't be nervous about something like this, but the station was a block away from our apartment building. And what was more strange, I didn't see any news stations nearby, not one reporting on anything. When we got home, I checked for any updates about Wakewood. Nothing from any major, medium, or minor news network. All I found were a few posts from randoms on Twitter, which were shadow banned or quickly taken down. And just as my interest had peaked, there was a knock at the window. Although we were six stories up, this was far from abnormal. Rick, our neighbor from the apartment next door, was on the balcony that we shared, which was separated by a large piece of frosted glass. We joked that we were kind of like each other's Wilsons from Home Improvement. I joined him on the balcony and bummed a drag from his sig over the partition. I was happy to see Rick and figured that he would have some wild idea about what was going on. He worked for the city but thrived on conspiracy theories and had his finger on the pulse. He was never less than interesting and wasn't insulting or condescending. And as it turned out, he had a huge scoop on what was happening. 
I tried to keep up, but he spoke fast, overwhelming me with information. Sometimes it felt like that was part of how he came across as persuasive. Every word and sentence marched out like a perfectly thorough and thought-out idea. He spoke well and found the right words to make you question what you previously believed. Rick claimed that there was a viral leak. Down by the water in the industrial district, there are several large warehouses that contain some kind of secret government facility. At one of the warehouses in a gain-of-function lab, a vicious strain of experimental pathogen had gotten out. An infected lab worker left work, got on the subway, and made it five stops before getting off and dying on the tracks. The worker apparently had started screaming and jumped over the edge as a new subway was coming into the station. They were trying to do contact tracing by using face identifying technology with the CCTV footage throughout the trains and the platforms. I asked Rick how he knew this and he said that he had people working with the city that were feeding him details as they happened. Rick himself was an electrician and was constantly in and out of the subway systems. In fact, he told me that he was sneaking in later. He had his own hazmat suit and clearance through the city, and if he got turned away, he said that he would creep in through the sewers. He said that he knew some secret routes through the city. Man, with that, Jules came out and the conversation turned towards the pregnancy and next week's birth. Rick said that he bought our soon-to-be-born daughter a bottle of whiskey for her 18th birthday, so it'll age nicely by the time that she opens it. Jules and Rick went on, but I kept thinking about what Rick had said about the Wakewood station. It all seemed scary and true. He had been persuasive again, and I felt anxiety creeping back in. During dinner, the speaker that we were using to listen to Spotify turned off. I checked my cell, but I found no bars. Jules checked hers, and it was the same. Our wireless router wasn't picking up any signal. I turned on the TV, and every channel had the same thing on a bright yellow screen. It was a warning. The downtown core was under strict and immediate lockdown. No one was to leave their homes under any circumstances. We were to leave the TV on for further instruction. As they came. Jules and I were in disbelief. Her more than I. I was thinking back to the conversation with Rick. And how much more sane it was sounding. I wanted to see what he thought about all of this. But when I banged on the wall we shared with him. I got nothing back. That meant that Rick was there in the subway systems either discovering what was happening or being discovered. I looked out the window when I peered into the other apartment buildings. They were all filled with the yellow lights from the TV screen warning. Everyone was staring helplessly at the same thing. This was real. We talked about going to our neighbors down the hall or on other floors and to see if they had heard anything. But we decided to stay inside for the night and watch a Blu-ray. We wanted to get our minds off of what was happening and towards the excitement of next week. But it was impossible. We went to bed early, but just laid there. We were spooning and I knew that she was awake too. Our hands were in their nightly spot, linked together on top of her pregnant belly. I could feel the baby moving around most nights. 
but tonight was interrupted by knocks at the window in the living room. It was Rick, and he was back. I went to meet him out on the balcony. He was panicking, covered in sweat like he had just run a marathon, which seemed at least half right. He had gotten into the subway station, and he had learned things. As he started, I was noticing how sweaty he had gotten. He was coughing and his nose was running. If whatever he was talking about was a virus, he looked to have the most common symptoms. I asked him to calm down and speak slowly. He took a breath and he laid it out. Rick claimed that he was wrong, kind of, and that it wasn't biochemical medical labs and the warehouses. It was a series of testing facilities for advanced particle accelerators. A defense contractor had built a groundbreaking new Hadron Collider to test the limits of cosmic acceleration and dark matter. It started with the creation of microscopic quantum black holes, but they had been pushing the accelerator further. Its reach far exceeding our known laws of nature, of reality, Something came out of one of the black holes before the accelerator was shut down. The CDC had been brought in quickly to contain and study. What they had discovered was something like a virus. At least that's how they were referring to it. But it wasn't like anything anyone had ever known of. It was both physiological and psychological. It was being referred to as Pandemia 115. It appeared that when you became infected... It started with a migraine, chills, and a fever. Then, at the hallucination start. You'll hear things first, see things, and it will keep pushing them on you. The virus comes in three waves of those over the course of a nine-hour lifespan. It operated by latching into our nervous system and adrenal glands, feeding off our naturally occurring cortisol spikes during fear responses. The hyperintelligent virus finds our most personal fear-inducing thoughts, and it supercharges them, strengthening itself as we grow weaker. In the end, the virus burns the host out with a fever of 115, and what was worse, it had an 80% infection fatality rate. Rick went into a hacking coughing fit, which he then blamed on too many cigarettes, but it didn't look like that. It looked like his body was trying to fight something off and it was losing. I was getting more nervous. Whether or not the Hadron Collider thing was accurate or not, there was some kind of virus or bacteria that caused a massive citywide lockdown. And good or bad, Rick was our only current source of information. A spotlight hit our window from below and yelling from a megaphone bellowed up from the street. Voices ordered us back inside under threat of immediate arrest. I rushed in and right into Jules. She had been there at the doorway to the balcony, listening. We ducked down and shut the door. The spotlights turned off and the eerie stillness of the quiet downtown returned. Jules and I whispered to each other. She told me that she had heard most of what Rick had said, and it all sounded crazy. I agreed, but something was happening. Footsteps and movement came from the stairs down the hall. I heard more orders being barred, and then boards being put up against the doors. Nail guns firing off. They were locking all of us into our apartments. 
I went to the door to confront them, yelling that there was a pregnant woman inside. But there was no response, and before I could open the door, it was bolted shut. They had locked down our whole floor and then moved on to the next one. And we listened as they went through our entire building. We looked out the windows, keeping far enough away from the edges, and we saw large teams of scientists and military personnel. They were all in hazmat suits, carrying medical equipment, nail guns and bolting equipment, or semi-automatic rifles. They also had body bags. The side of our wall erupted in banging. It was Rick, and it sounded like he was going to come right through into our apartment. He started screaming, the most terrified, unsettling shrieks of absolute fear. I yelled to him, even banged back from our side, but Rick continued screaming and thudding his side of the wall. And then the thudding stopped. The screaming continued, but it moved through Rick's apartment. A second later, we heard glass shattering, and then a sick, horrifying thud on the pavement below. We rushed to the window and saw Rick's body splayed out on the pavement. Hazmat suits moved in with large hoses and sprayed a cement-like liquid which solidified in seconds after covering his body. Spotlight hit his window and ours again. We dropped back down, hiding below the frame. After a moment, the spotlight disappeared and darkness resumed. We could hear workers below sterilizing and cleaning up the blood splatter from Rick's body. Jules was crying quietly, trying to hide it. Not that she needed to. I was shook and felt my stomach doing somersaults. We couldn't wrap our heads around how quickly our lives had changed since this morning. We decided to pull the shades in our bedroom and hope for a better tomorrow. But neither of us could sleep. Our Wi-Fi was out so we couldn't listen to music or anything. So we pulled out our phones and went through all the photos that we had together. We had each taken pictures of mostly some other times and events. So it was fun to see and compare the ones we decided to hold on to individually. It put us into a better mood and we started to kiss. But it was all interrupted by a cell phone ringtone. It was coming from the living room. And it wasn't one of our phones. I got up confused. Jules was even more puzzled, but at me, she couldn't hear anything. As I got to the bedroom door, another cell phone chimed out. It was the Spongebob theme song. And then another tune joined in, this one from a different kid's show. I entered the living room as four, five, six new cell phones joined in. A chorus had begun and they all hit the same harmony that I had heard before, back in the school hallway, filled with kids and their never-ending ringtones. On the floor of the living room were a pile of bloody cell phones all ringing out with the screens displaying the words, Call from Mom or Dad. Jules sidled up next to me, worried. She didn't hear the cell phones or see them. Pain streaked through my brain and I couldn't think as a migraine took control. I stumbled back onto the couch. Jules dropped down next to me, putting her hands on me to comfort. And that was when I realized that I was freezing. And I mean dead of deep north winter freezing. A blanket was thrown over me quickly. Jules was trying to warm me up. 
and like a cloud of fog dissipating, the migraine had loosened its hold, but it was replaced by something else. Whatever was out there infecting people, I had it, and the first wave was about to start. The fever rocked my body. I had never felt so hot like I was on fire inside and out. Jules got me into the shower and blasted the cold water. I laid in the tub, hyperventilating. As tears overwhelmed Jules, she put her face in her hands. This was all too much for both of us. Then the sobbing and tears had changed almost imperceptibly, but it continued to shift. Like a staticky TV channel coming into reception, it wasn't crying anymore. It was laughter. Slowly, Jules started pulling her hands away from her face, but it wasn't her face anymore. It was like a child, old and twisted, broken and rearranged like a real-life Dr. Seuss character. Her lips pulled back into a giant smile, and her teeth began to elongate. No, they were falling out, being pushed up by larger, sharper teeth. Her lower jaw unhinged and extended down, revealing rows of other sharper teeth and a deep, black chasm of her throat. The frightening child stood up, looking down at me in the tub. I wanted to get up and get out, but I had dream legs and nothing was working. I managed to grab the shower curtain, just as the child had jumped down on me, and I blocked her. I felt my legs get their strength back, and I flipped the body off me. I shot up and out of the bathroom. Footsteps followed me out into the hallway and I ran into the bedroom. I slammed the door shut, but when I turned back, I wasn't in Jules and my bedroom. I was in my childhood basement. The lone, finicky light bulb overhead twitched on and off, just like it always used to. My eyes stayed away from the back corner of the basement, but I could just see something poking out of the shadows. The two silver-protected bars that made up the cage at the front of a football helmet. My heart turned into a machine gun. The rest of me was paralyzed. The helmet. My dad's old high school football helmet. A fear that had long been forgotten suddenly overwhelmed me with a horrifying nostalgia. The helmet shifted. Something moved it. Something inside of it. And then buzzing, so faint at first, but it grew louder. The helmet vibrated with the sound. I heard wings begin to hum. I knew what was in there, and I took off for the stairs up. I got halfway up before they began to elongate, stretching upward into infinity. The stairs below me shifted into a ramp, and my legs went down. I managed to catch myself, and I pressed my legs and arms against the opposing walls, though preventing myself from sliding down. Below, the helmet rolled past the staircase, buzzing emanating from it. The buzzing stopped. In the shadows, I heard what sounded like hands on the cement floor, slapping skin, hitting the ground as they moved something forward. The child with the lower jaw came into view now, crouched down on all fours like a wild animal about to attack. The lower jaw hung only inches from the ground. The upper part of her face was alternating between the demented child and Jules. The words, My baby's hungry, 
croaked out from the open cavern of her mouth, and then she darted up the flat stairs towards me, still on all fours. Within seconds, she was over top of me, her jaw about to clamp down around my head, and then everything disappeared, and I was back in our apartment. I was on the floor of the bathroom and Jules was performing CPR on me. I felt like my lungs had been used to run back-to-back -back marathons and my heart had been in a pain shaker. I was jittery and panicked, my eyes darting around the room looking for predators. But none came. The first wave was over and I barely made it through. It felt exactly like Rick had said. And with that... The frightening realization that Jules was likely going to have it now too. And with the baby in her belly. It couldn't have been more than a minute later when Jules keeled over, gently rubbing her temples. The migraine had started. I watched as the chills swept across her body. Then the fever. Then for a moment she seemed lucid and fine. She said that she felt better. But then she started to talk to someone in the corner of the room. It wasn't in a language, though. It sounded like she had forgotten how to speak. Something similar had been happening over the last few weeks, though. She had called it pregnancy brain and said that her mind would get foggy sometimes when she was trying to think of a word. But this was different. This was a gibberish, and frightened gibberish at that. Jules stood up in bed and screamed into the corner in fear. I tried to calm her down, but she jumped off the bed and ran into the hallway. I chased after her and found her in the kitchen. She was rifling through the utensil drawer and found a pair of scissors, and she had the pointed end at her belly and was yelling at someone behind her. I froze, afraid to move and cause her to panic. She didn't seem to see me, so I moved in slowly, planning to somehow get the scissors from her hand. I was almost at her when her attention turned from over my shoulder to right in my eyes. She pulled the scissors away, raising them above her head and slashing at me with them. I managed to catch her wrist and twist it until she had dropped the shears. I grabbed her other wrist and pulled her down carefully, being mindful of the baby. I held Jules tight as she squirmed against me, trying to get away. Slowly, her fighting had eased and I felt her body going limp. Her breathing slowed, and then she shuddered and came to. She was back, awake. Jules was trembling. Whatever she had seen had shaken her to the core. I carried her to the couch, and we got as comfortable as we could. A scream from one of the apartments above us broke the momentary serenity, and then another one somewhere on the floors below. There was banging on the walls and the floors and the ceiling. We could hear fighting, more screams and cries for help. They all slowly faded away, and silence returned. Time had passed quickly. I didn't really realize it, but the first wave had been far longer than the hallucination I remembered. I tried to prepare myself for the next wave, wondering what the heck it was going to come after me with. After all, it had found my childhood fear of my parents' basement, the football helmet, and the moth inside of it. I was only eight when it had happened, but it felt like a defining moment. I had been playing in my parents' basement when I had stumbled upon my father's old high school football helmet. 
I slid it over my head and I strapped it on. What I didn't know was that there was a baby moth inside of it. The tiny creature panicked and ended up flying into my ear. It crept further in as I thrashed about, trying to pull off the helmet but the strap clip jammed. It was stuck on my head. I pulled and pulled but it wasn't budging. And the whole time all I could hear was the humming and attempted buzzing of the moth as it kept going deeper. My mom found me screaming and took me to the hospital. The little insect had burrowed in so deep that I had to get it surgically removed. The buzzing and the humming haunted me for months. I had nightmares about the moth laying eggs in my brain. My parents kept telling me that it was a baby and it couldn't carry any eggs yet, but I didn't believe them. Thinking back on it, remembering the details, made me more afraid of the virus and what it would find in my psyche. My memory raced through the minefield that was my past. Not just being a cop, which I had done for half a decade and had seen horrible things that became new fears, but all kinds of things from my teenage years, my childhood. Jules nuzzled her head under my chin. For a second, I forgot about the world and I enjoyed the moment. But like everything else, it couldn't last. I felt that lightning bolt of pain strike through the center of my head. I curled forward, rubbing my temples, knowing that it was about to start all again. The chills creeped in as the migraine eventually dissipated. The chills were colder this time. Somehow, I could see my own breath like the air in my lungs were frosted. But that quickly melted away as the fever was tagged in. It felt like I was sitting in a bonfire in the middle of the Sahara Desert, wearing ten fur coats while pouring gas on myself. It lasted for what felt like an hour, but then it too was gone, and Jules helped me get from the cold shower back to the couch. Not a moment after I hit the couch, a lone scream pierced out from one of the floors above. It was from a child. I asked Jules if she had heard it, but she had disappeared. Only the distant echo of her voice remained. I wasn't in our apartment anymore. I was back in the junior high school. I was sitting in a classroom chair, one of those small ones with a tiny desk attached to it. I was surrounded by bodies. Students stacked high and formed into a tightly packed maze. It was a horrific sight. I realized I was the same age as these kids, 12, maybe 13. A tune whistled out from somewhere in the maze. Pop goes the weasel. I couldn't tell where it was coming from. And then another whistle joined in, but this one was from a different direction. They harmonized together. A low hum joined in, a buzzing. The only thing that I could think of doing was the only thing that I had ever been taught about mazes, which was the wall follower rule. It was simple enough. If you put your right hand on the wall and you walked, it will eventually lead you to the exit. I had to learn this the hard way when I was a kid. I had gotten lost in a corn maze at a Halloween fair in the country. It wasn't supposed to be for kids, but I had wandered in and I wasn't found for over an hour. I was terrified when they had pulled me out. I thought there were things amongst the corn, creatures coming for me. The virus had found that memory, 
that fear and seized on it. I wouldn't put my hand in the wall of the bodies, but I held it out close to it and I started off through the maze. The whistling was further off now, but the two were sounding closer together, like they had found each other. I kept going. The maze pathway led me out of the class and into the gymnasium. Smoke hung in the air, reeking of cordite from the gunfire. There were bodies hanging from the rafters above. It was dark, but I could tell that they were the teachers. Crying was coming from somewhere in the middle of the maze, my legs leading me towards it. Everything felt like it had that surreal, constantly forward-moving momentum that dreams always carry. Like whether you're walking or standing still, you're basically on a conveyor belt to wherever your subconscious is taking you next. My right hand was still stretched out to the wall of bodies, and tiny hands were brushing against it as I passed. The pathway grew narrower and taller as I got closer to the crying. I heard rustling above and I looked up. The teachers were now lowering down from the rafters and into the maze with me. They were joining in with the whistling from the boys, causing a loud echo throughout the jam. I tried to pick up my pace, but I had no control over it. The whistling was overwhelming, and mixed in with it, I could hear the children's ringtones joining. Humming and buzzing came from the sides of the walls, and there was movement amongst these stacked-up bodies. I turned a corner, and I found myself in a dead end. But I wasn't alone. There was a little girl there, and I recognized her immediately. It was Jules. I had seen pictures of her as a child, not that I needed to to identify her. She had that same face, just 15 years younger. She asked if I was here to save her. I said that I was, but didn't know how to. She took my hand and told me just being there was enough. The whistling and the ringtones got closer. Jules led me back on the path that we had just came, but there was now a fork in the lane leading off to the left. The sounds were coming from the path to the right, so we went left. The maze led us out of the gymnasium and into a large room with an indoor pool. It was the Crestview Community Center. I have remembered it from my childhood. I had taken swimming lessons here and I nearly drowned. Before I could ask her why she took me here, young Jules grabbed my hands tighter and pulled me over the edge. We were both fully submerged, her pulling me down to the bottom. But I had managed to break free from her grip and I swam to the surface. And then I saw them pouring in through the entrance. All of the dead students and teachers surged into the pool. They were coming for me. I tried to swim again, but the water was thick and my body felt like dead weight. I wasn't moving. Hands grabbed every part of me as the body swarmed me, pulling me down into the now blood-filled pool. The last thing that I saw before going under were the two shooters standing at the edge of the pool laughing. Their hands were out in front of them, and the same handcuff-me-officer gesture. Dozens, hundreds of hands pulling me to the bottom of the pool, which I couldn't even see anymore. It felt like we were in the ocean. It was impossible to fight against, but I kept kicking and punching and thrashing against them. I kept thinking of Jules back home on the couch, 
waiting for me to wake back up. Their grips became weaker as I continued to fight back. I felt myself getting closer to the surface, pushing through bodies and pulling away from their hands. Just as my breath was about to run out, I burst through the surface, and I shot up beside Jules on the couch, gasping for air. She was still under, trembling with fresh vomit dripping from her mouth and chin down her chest. I wiped the vomit away and tried to clear her throat, but there were no obstructions. Her airways were open, breathing fast but unimpeded. I didn't know what to do. All I could think was to pull their clothes hand in hand and rub both over her belly. The trembling got worse, heavier. Jules felt like she was starting to have a seizure. Her head shook back in violent jerks and then... She froze, head back mid-screen. Her chest wasn't moving up and down from breathing. Jules gasped forward, nearly falling into the coffee table, but I caught her. Jules was awake and she was alive. We both were. And before she had managed to catch her breath, she was sobbing, a terribly sad weep. I couldn't imagine what she had just seen, been shown. She's a triage nurse after all and had been one for longer than I had been a cop. I only heard some of the more filtered stories and they were absolute horror shows. But I didn't want to think about those. I wanted to clear my mind of anything the virus could use. When we got up, rehydrated, and did a small cleanup, which felt unnecessary now and more of a point of attempted orderliness than anything. There were another three hours until dawn. We figured that meant the next wave was going to hit soon, which also meant we would be coming out of it to the sun rising. We really didn't have much time. We decided that we didn't want to be found on the couch if we didn't make it. Jules put on her wedding dress, ripping the sides of it so it could fit over her pregnant belly. I put on the tux that I wore. I moved the TV into the bedroom, and we put on a movie that we both grew up watching. The Princess Bride. We laughed at the same jokes at the same times. We always did. It was our movie. I thought about last week. How difficult things had been, how afraid I was. It all felt so small now. I was making deals with any god that was listening to let us get through this, and I'd be grateful for every brass that I took afterwards. And with that, the wedding scene had started. Only the characters weren't in a church. They were in the junior high school hallway. The audience members were the children and teachers, racked with bullet holes. The princess and Wesley were now the two shooters. A ground-shaking migraine, a frozen chill, and a scorching fever tore through my body at the same time, exploding in waves through my muscles. It was unbearable, like the virus had saved everything up to unleash on me at once. The TV screen began to expand, covering the entire wall and pushing towards us on the bed. Jules was beginning to seizure blood streaming from her nose. I tried to grab her, but she sunk into the bed and disappeared. The TV screen absorbed the entire room, which was now the school hallway. I was alone now. Raindrops started falling. A massive storm cloud had replaced the ceiling, now much higher than 20 feet above. 
bolts of electricity fired through it, lighting up shadows of creatures inside, resembling large, frightening insects. Moss. Buzzing overtook the thunder as the rain came down in sheets. I started to run, slipping and sliding along the blood and rain slicked tiling. The hallway was extending, and it was adding more doorways as it was. I saw horrific memories of all my old traumas coming back. There were monsters from comics that I had read in movies that I had seen as a kid. The old petrified tree in my neighbor's yard that I used to think would swoop down and grab me if I ever walked by it alone. Swarms of large insects and carnivorous moths. The virus had found them all. I felt like I was in a car, whipping past memories and fears. As I sprinted past the doors, they began spilling out behind me like some thick, twisted clown car full of nightmares. My terrors chased me, gaining in numbers with every door. I realized my whole life was one big fear. I felt everything behind me getting closer and larger, as I was shrinking down to nothing. The hallway stopped expanding, and suddenly the far end rushed back towards me. On the wall, speeding ahead, was a lone door that I recognized. The office of our OBGYN. I didn't care. I rushed in and slammed the door. Red moonlight poured in from the windows. I could see Jules in the chair to the right, the one that she always sat in. She wasn't pregnant and had her face in her hands bawling, but she wasn't alone. I was beside her in the chair to the right, but it wasn't me. It was like a real-life mannequin version of me. Plasticky, shiny, almost waxy. I was grinning from ear to ear. An uncomfortable truth pulsed through me, one that I had kept locked away, deep down even for myself. But it was out now, and my biggest fear had revealed itself. I hadn't wanted Jules to get birth. There was a time when I did, a time that I looked forward to it, fantasized about being a dad. But now it was different. I didn't think that I could protect Jules or anyone else. I had been growing pessimistic since before the shooting had happened, but after it, all I could see was our kid in that school, blown apart for no reason by some maniac they didn't even know. The attack had all been so pointless. I guess that's why the shooters did it. To hurt everyone by hurting the most vulnerable. To hurt our futures. And they had made me question mine. It was worse than fear, though. It had guilt twisted in through it because it was what Jules and I had wanted. And now I felt like I couldn't be anything other than a massive disappointment. A colossal failure. The wax figure's grin grew larger and the smiling shooter's face flooded my mind. I could tell that he enjoyed the feeling that I had and realized that it was making him stronger. Every acceptance of it would make him larger and me smaller. Jules screamed out and fell off the chair, clutching her belly. I ran to her side trying to help. Her stomach was flat but there was movement under the skin. And then it ballooned outwards like a rapid growth pregnancy. Jules was crying in pain as she went to full-term size in seconds. The outline of something rigid and bony was shifting under her skin as it expanded outwards. Jules stopped screaming and went limp.
she was gone. But the movement inside of her kept shifting. Then it was humming, a buzzing from inside. A sharp proboscis pierced the skin and tore down the side of Jules' belly. A second proboscis poked out, revealing the frightening face of a moth, though its mouth was filled with the sharp, jagged teeth of other larger creatures. The plastic version of me started laughing, bellowing out from behind me. It was the happiest that he had ever been. Anger burned through me. I grabbed the chair that Jules had been sitting in and slammed it down on the moth. Jules' stomach caved inward as I rained down blows, turning the moth into nothing. As I destroyed the creature, I realized the anger driving me and flowing through my arms was because I did want the baby. I was scared that I wouldn't stack up to the challenge, but I wanted to be her dad. I was reminded of all the positive daydreams that I had of having a baby, a child with jewels, what we would do together and how we would learn and grow. The moth stopped moving. Everything went quiet. I looked down at Jules and felt air leave the room. My heart stopped and rose into my throat. We were back in our apartment. The sun had risen high in the sky now and filled the living room with light. I was standing over Jules, holding one of the stools from the kitchen. It was a horrifying sight. An open cavity now. The remnants of what it once was. It was all done by me. The aftermath dripped from the stool and plops. I dropped it in a daze now, unbelieving of what I had done. I couldn't cry or think. I could barely breathe. I couldn't come to terms with what I had committed in my mind, fractured into millions of acidic thorns. I felt like literal poison. Toxic. A breeze passed through the apartment and I noticed the windows open. It seemed to beckon to me. I couldn't imagine carrying on after this, so I walked towards the window and I climbed up on the edge. The town was calm. It didn't look like anyone else was awake yet. Or maybe I was it. Rick had said that it was an 80% death rate. Maybe it was even more than that. Maybe I had been the only survivor. I didn't care. The world was different now and I didn't want to live in it. I shifted on the ledge, leaning forward and I felt gravity taking over. Just as my hand left the window frame, a cold, clammy grip latched onto my wrist, pulling me back into the apartment. I landed on the ground hard and felt air fill my lungs like I hadn't breathed in hours. The light in the apartment had changed. The soft glow of the morning sun was just passing between the buildings in the distance, filling the room with warmth. It was dawn. And Jules was standing over me. She was alive, though it looked like she had had one heck of a night. Her belly looked perfectly healthy and untouched. She bent down and hugged me. I realized that I was awake now, really awake. There were no more fears or hallucinations, no more facing the past. We had both made it. We cried together for what felt like an hour. Two days later, the bolts were removed from our doors and the hazmats had arrived again. 
All surviving tenants of the building were now immune and cleared to leave. Jules and I were the only ones. Jules was bombarded with pressure waves and we were rushed to the hospital. We were examined and she gave birth in quarantine to our beautiful healthy daughter. In the weeks that followed, there was a change between us. The ground below our feet felt more stable. Everyday issues felt so small and easy to overcome. Jules and I had gone to war together and had come back closer than before. I felt my courage and strength grow every day. And I know that Jules did too. Whatever she experienced, she overcame it, same as I did. We still don't know what happened that weekend. We signed NDAs and received a small sum of hush money. The mainstream media were feeding talking points about a natural gas leak in the subway that had caused hallucinations and death. But we know that's not true. We know something leaked out and destroyed most of our small town and the government somehow contained it and hid it. Hopefully, nothing like it ever leaks out again. And that story will wrap it up for today. Thank you for making it to the end. I really appreciate your continued support. I also appreciate the continued support of today's sponsor, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. I hope that you're all having a great June so far. It's really heating up where I'm at and I've been enjoying the extra dose of vitamin D from the sun lately. On that note, thanks for listening and I hope that wherever you're at in the world, you stay healthy and stay safe. And of course, stay creepy.